You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. All right, Nijay, back here. Uh, Nijay Gupta is my friend and my co-host. I'm AJ Swoboda. Welcome back to Slow Theology. I get to pick. I'm going to pick. This is my pick today. It is the, the the topic du jour for good old AJ. I want to talk about something. Actually, I've wanted to talk about it for a long time with you. It's sensitive. It's prickly. But it is one that rises to the surface for me as both a professor, but also as a human, as a Christian as a pastor, it is just, it's always on the surface, specifically in working with college students. And that is, I want to talk about the spirituality of, of celibacy, or, or rather, I should say the spirituality of singleness, uh, which which uh, is is uh, one and the same. And, and I want to talk about singleness as a married guy, uh, which is a pretty awkward, it could be an co- awkward conversation. Do I have any authority to speak about this topic? Well, I was single for a long time. And so I, I have had the experience of singleness. Uh, I'm not single. I'm married. You're married. Um, you've got kiddos. I've got a son. Yep. I don't think that sidestepping this conversation works for anybody because at the end of the day, celibacy and singleness is not uh, a form of Christian leprosy. Right. It is not a signpost of failure. It is not uh, something to be ashamed of. And, and it's, and it's, and it's frankly for many young people and old, people of all ages in the church, a point of great shame because as my friend Preston Sprinkle is always saying, we we have really done a great job in in American the American Church of making the goal of the Christian life marriage, and and that when we make the goal of the Christian life marriage, and marriage isn't on the table, then we basically make it impossible for people to truly find their fulfilled self in Christ. And I, I think it's important for us to just have a conversation about this. What do we think about singleness, uh, and why is it important, and why is why is it more of a gift? than maybe previous generations have thought of. So I, I want to start with actually a Bible question for you, Nijay, because my understanding of a lot of the New Testament language around marriage has to do with a, a certain way of structuring Hebrew society. So in, for example, in the time of Jesus, right. there was a practice called Levite marriage, which was if, if a husband died, then the next in line, the brother would take the the, the, the widow uh, into his home and, right. and you would have basically, you basically, it was basically an early church. It was, it was a sort of Hebrew social welfare system where mm-hmm. uh, women would be cared for uh, single women would be cared for widows would be cared for. Well, in the early church, um, Jesus, for example, um, makes, makes a pretty darn clear comment about, uh, about the gift of celibacy in Matthew 19, uh, when he talks about that, it's better for some to not, Mary, and that this is you know it's a hard word and it should only be received by by those that can accept it. So Jesus, who's a single guy, Jesus uh, in his own teaching makes room for singleness um, and, right. and and celibacy. And then Paul in First Corinthians seven goes so far as to talk about being unmarried and it being a gift from God. And he says, I want everybody you know to to have the gift that I am that, that I have, or at least uh, he, he's admonishing. I should say he's admonishing. Uh, Christians to be open to this gift of being unmarried. So here's a question for you. In the ancient world, you didn't have a welfare system in the way that we do. You don't have a bureaucratic state. You had families and families would take care of people. So shouldn't it mean that if Jesus and Paul are inviting Christians to consider celibacy as something and singleness perhaps as something God is inviting them to, 
that the church is called to play the role of caring for those individuals and including those individuals. And meaning, shouldn't it be that in the early church and, and in the church today, that singleness is actually an invitation to the church to open its doors and be hospitable, gracious, loving, and to create space and not create a second-class citizenship status for the unmarried. So I'm going to put that in your court. As a New Testament guy, what, what do we know about singleness in the early church? What do we know about it in the New Testament? And am I right? Am I onto something there? Yeah, I mean, let's just take Jesus, for example. I mean, you know, young, healthy guy from Galilee, you know, his family would expect him to get married and to have a family. I mean, this was, uh, you know, an ultimate goal of living a fruitful life, you know, just like Abraham. Remember, we were talking about that last episode, Abraham, and, you know, God told Abraham, you know, your your descendants will be, uh, your progeny will be as numerous as the stars. And like, who cares? Well, you know, the whole point of living in that culture was to create a strong family name and to become honorable, successful, and, and just to have a lot of children and, and to have a durable family line. And so I think that was an ex- expectation put on Jesus. I can't imagine it wasn't. And yet, um, I think what we're witnessing in the New Testament is two things. The world as it has always been, which is going to expect family, and this kind of urgency of the preaching of the gospel getting out there in the world and the anticipation of a new world order. And so you have people like Jesus to some degree, but also, but especially the apostles who are caught in the world between the worlds or the age between the ages. They live in the old age where there are families and there are families that want to have families. And then there is the world not yet come and this this age in between where they, there's this urgency, you know, the world is going to be rolled up like a scroll. The stars are going to fall from heaven. And so that led to a whole new way of thinking about life. And this is exactly what he says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, isn't marriage going to distract you? Is it going to divide your interests and loyalties? You're going to want to be all the way in for Jesus out there preaching the gospel, but then you got people to take care of at home. So your, your interests are going to be divided. Your attention is going to be divided. So that's why Paul says, I wish that everyone were like me. But... Then if you fast forward to 1 Timothy, I think it's chapter 4, Paul says to the young widows, you need to get married, be a good house manager, have babies, create families. Why? Well, there's a theory that the reason he says that is not to put women in their place, but to say it's actually church families that are going to create the income that's going to support the poor old widows. He says to young widows, you need to get married. He says, the old widows, you can apply for our Christian welfare. We will take care of you. Hmm. So I think what we're witnessing actually in the New Testament is a blend, a kind of overlapping of two worlds, the world as it has always been, and the world, and, and then this kind of forward-leaning, apostolic, expansive mission that has urgency. You know, let me just take an example. I'm not trying to be evasive here, but let me give an example here. Priscilla and Aquila, do they have kids? And you might think naturally, yes, um, we don't hear about them, which is interesting. We don't often hear about the teenage or 
20-something kids of these older Christian leaders. But um, the fact that Priscilla and Aquila are pulling up stakes and moving from city to city to plant churches in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Rome, and perhaps elsewhere may mean that their life is too helter-skelter for them to actually settle down and have a family. But I want to pivot a little bit here, AJ, and just say I've actually learned a lot from Wesley Hill, who's a New Testament scholar, who is um, you know, openly gay, Christian, celibate. He probably doesn't use the word evangelical anymore because he kind of is, is in more of a mainline sort of space, but he would fit broadly that, that category. And people have often wondered about... Um, you know, this is called the B-side sometimes, the gay celibate uh, movement. They've wondered if these people are doomed to a lonely existence without the possibility of Christian marriage and sex. And Wesley has actually written a book called Spiritual Friendship, where he talks about the recovery of a monastic, which were these, you know, single Christians back in the medieval period, a monastic appreciation of friendship as fulfilling, Mm. not just sexual relationships, not just marriage, but actually peer-to-peer personal friendships. They can be mentor, they can be peer level, whatever it is. And that, you know, engaging with his work has been profoundly transformed by the way I think about relationships because just because I'm married doesn't mean that's the only friendship I should have. Yes. Um, I'm one of these people that would just love to sit back and watch a movie with my wife every night and play cards and but but having male friendships that are deep and vitalizing uh is a powerful thing. We know that Jesus and Paul had those kinds of relationships. Um I'm getting off track a bit, but I have have I touched on your question. You're not off track at all. There's there's this uh, great scholar, uh, Anglican theologian named uh, Sarah Copley, yeah. uh, whose work on a desire and asceticism and singleness. She's actually written a great deal on celibacy. Um, she, she has this little, this little cool thing that she does where she talks about how, uh, you know, when you look at the, Jesus's words of uh, in, in the new, in the new kingdom, when we resurrect, we will not be resurrected into marriages anymore. That our marriages will actually, you know, will be like angels and there will not be a individual marriages in, in the heavenly state. Right. And so she, she has this thing where she says, you know, when God created the man and the woman, the, their friendship between the two of them preceded their sexual union. Right. And at the end, sexual union will be undone and the friendship will continue. And she, she makes the case, the Bible be, begins with humans being friends and ends with eternal friendship, mm. endless friendship. If you ask me, it's a distinctly American thing to try to, say that sexuality is the fulfilling fulfilling activity. Right. And it's not. The sexual that the, the Wesley Hill could find fulfillment in friendship. That that is a signpost to us of God's intimate design that the, the basic necessity of intimacy is is not found merely in an orgasm. Mm-hmm. It is found in the in deep intimate friendship between people who care and love one another well. Um, you know, in, in some Christian churches, Nijay, singleness and celibacy are seen as, as problems to be fixed. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, I, 
I don't know where that came from. I have my suspicions. Um, I think a church culture that idolatrously lifts up marriage mm-hmm. as the goal of Christian life is getting it. It's starting to look like the idol it worships. It's becoming its idol. And es- essentially what's happened is that we're seeing now single people leave the church because, because there's no uh, understanding uh, for a broader context, a, b- a broader understanding of relationships outside of just marriage. But we, we got to reckon, reckon with the fact, don't we? We literally worship a single guy. Yeah, <laughs> right. Our worship is oriented towards a single, uh, a single guy who n- never married, never had kids, and yet was wildly fruitful. That's another interesting part of this. In Genesis one and two, God tells the man, the woman, to be fruitful and multiply. Who is the most fruitful person in human history? Jesus is. Yeah, and he never has sex. Fruitfulness is not the result of sexual union. It is a part of it. It can be. Yeah but it's not the whole kit and caboodle. That's why when, when Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go into all the world and, and preach and, and teach people to follow the things I said, I've often wondered if that is like Jesus's fulfillment of the fruitfulness command. No doubt Paul says in um, Galatians that the gospel is now bearing fruit in the whole world. Right. And so, so the, the, the fruit has gone forth and it's not, that fruitfulness is not merely about sexual union and sexual activity. How can we need, Jay, in our communities, in our small groups, in our in our churches, maybe embrace a more thorough spirituality and practice of singleness for people in our church that are called in this season of life to singleness? How can we actually change our practices to honor what the New Testament has to say? I mean, it begins with um, not seeing singleness as aberrant or incomplete. And I think that's often how we treat singleness as, oh... I'm sorry for that person. They're getting old and they're by themselves. But but to rather treat it as a different a different course than, you know, the married course and not, you know, you know, our churches will hold a million marriage marriage retreats. But they're not going to make space sometimes for people together. Um so I think that's part of it. I th- I think it's just understanding that um the American dream is not the exact same thing as the gospel dream. And it's hard mm-hmm. for us to separate the two because we're so used to the American dream of wealth and of, you know, white picket fences and a family with 2.5 kids and a dog and all of that. And and then to say, when we actually read the New Testament, it looks different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, th- this is just kind of anecdotal, but um, my understanding, you might know better, is if I'm a pastor interviewing for a job, I'm going to have a leg up if I'm married, mm-hmm. right? Because I look more complete as a human being, mm-hmm. right? It, have I, I've heard that somewhere. Is that, have you heard that before? I've never heard those exact words, but the sentiment is widespread. And then that's going to, again, see that single person, that single pastor, that single elder or leader as only half half of a person still waiting to find their soulmate. I guess that's where I would start is, is dispelling the notion of soulmate. Yeah. Cause soulmate is like, you know, like my son hasn't got his growth spur yet. And it's kind of like, okay, it's coming. It's going to come any day now. Like, I feel like when we say soulmate, that's kind of what we're saying is, Oh, it hasn't come yet. Mm. Oh no, there's something wrong with you. Mm. But mm. rather to say, um, I think in this life, AJ, we are destined to experience 
great depths of joy and communion with God, whether it's food or (laughs) relationships or movies, but then also we're going to experience all of us some kind of deprivation, some kind of longing, whether it's a health problem or a relationship issue or lack of, you know, underemployment. So to just pin happiness on one thing Mm -hmm. like marriage, I know plenty of people that are miserable (laughs) in their marriages. And I know, I know many single people who are content Yes. And who enjoy enjoy singleness or maybe even choose singleness. Yes. I think if we started day one, first bring back catechesis, but then when we have catechesis, then say singleness can be a choice. Not only can it just not only be tolerable, but it could be a choice. Just like Paul says for married couples, you might not have sex for a season of time for the purpose of prayer. He's saying you might deprive yourself of something for a good spiritual end. Yep. And then we're turning it away from aberrance to discipleship, yes, to um, being all in for Jesus. And then these are kind of like our Marines. I don't want to. I don't want to like go overboard there. But these are people who are able to free up this time to really invest in mentoring young people, or being involved as an elder, or preaching more, or going on mission trips, whatever it is. Um, we need to be able to turn it into a positive because, like you said, we have all of these great examples, like Paul, uh, of what it means to be single and devoted to the gospel, and sometimes just waiting yep. to see if that's that's. I think we have to address the question of that longing, whether the longing really comes from within us or whether the longing is a cultural pressure. Yeah, and we need to be able to release that. Yeah, let me put this out there too. You and I have a mutual friend. Talk, you, you mentioned eldership, and while, when you said that, I wanted to bring this up. You and I have a mutual friend, actually, that you and I both really respect, a really go, good friend. I won't name him here, but a really good friend who actually, you know, those, the, the eldership passages in the New Testament where Paul uh, outlines what is required for an elder uh, to be an elder. And there's, of course, uh, the comment that um, they must be a husband of one wife. Um, and right. you and I both would come from the perspective that would that would say that that the commitment of the mention that it's a man doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a man to be an elder, that that's not what Paul is after there. That's not the heart. But you and I both have a friend who actually argues that in order to be an elder, somebody has to be married. Right. And that you, you can't be single and be an elder. What what are your thoughts on that? You know, we talked this before AJ, but that would disqualify Jesus and Paul. And the definition of an elder is uh, a, a, older, mature Christian, an older, mature person, older, mature leader. And I know plenty of older, mature people. And I want to throw in another category into this, which I think is very relevant, actually, to this, this current discussion, is uh, a widow or a widower. So one of my neighbors is 84, and his wife died uh, a few years ago. And he is just full of wisdom and maturity. And the idea that we would have to say, hey, listen, you couldn't be an elder because you're not married is unfathomable to me because I think he would make a great voice and confidant. He's very healthy. He's very active. He rides his bicycle. He goes for walks every day. The idea that he couldn't serve as a Christian elder in his church is unfathomable to me because he brings so much wisdom and maturity. Mm-hmm. And I think 
the beautiful thing about eldership, you and I both spoken and consulted with churches on Christian leadership. The beautiful thing about how we can construct a great leadership team is not uniformity, but diversity. I want single people. I want married people. I want people with kids. I want people without kids. I want you know, Asian Americans. I want African American. I you know, I want white. I want everything in the mix because then you're gonna be able to serve a diverse people of God well. So the idea that let's have all married people, I think it's actually gonna make it harder for you mm. to minister to the pluriform and diverse groups of people that we want in our churches. And anytime you create a filter for leadership that kind of strikes me as demographic, then you're going to send a signal to people in church that they don't belong. Yes. And and, and we don't want to send that signal. We want to say, hey, our leadership reflects our church. Yeah. To me, that 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 is responsible. What's, what's your take on that husband and one wife element of those leadership qualifications. Yeah, I don't, um, I, I would be, um, I would be with you. I have a hard time imagining an, a position in the church that Jesus would not be qualified for um, right. or, or Paul. And so I have a difficult one kind of stretching that out um, that far, but you know, to, to the, to the point of the current, the current moment the church finds itself in, you know, you and I are in Oregon, Nijay, and you know, we live in a in a fairly progressive environment. I can speak for Eugene. It's it's a pretty progressive city, ma- major research university. Um, you know, you're in Portland, and it's a pretty common conversation for me when I'm talking with uh, a young person who's wrestling with their sexual identity, and they feel convicted by Jesus mm. to be single. Um, yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm I'm I've been made no bones about it, and I know I know you you haven't as well. I, I hold a a very I think I'm very committed to the historic Christian perspective on sexuality. And, and I invite my students to, who feel like it's, it's their calling to embrace it as well. And, you know, when you, when you walk a young person to make that decision to say, I'm going to willingly place my sexuality into the hands of Jesus and not get everything I want for the sake of the kingdom. They're invited. They, they are embracing out of faithfulness to Jesus, a life of singleness. Mm-hmm. And it just feels so odd to see a young person embrace singleness to faith, be faithful to Jesus, to be made yeah. to be feel a second class in the church because they're not married. So we're, we we need to pick one or the other because we don't we can't invite people to give up their sexuality to follow Jesus if we're simultaneously going to make marriage the goal of the Christian life. Because when we do, it's a little bit like throwing rocks at people while they care, while they carry their cross, mm. and it's not. It's not fair to them. If we are going to invite people to place their sexuality on the cross out of faithfulness to God, then we better be ready to make room at the dinner table for single people. And we better be ready to make room on our eldership teams for single people. And we better be ready to make room in our communities for people who are carrying their cross. And so, you know, I think this is a wildly important conversation for a moment in time, specifically as we enter into further and further and further a kind of secular progressive form of sexuality that is, you know, the church is needing to find out how it lives in this moment. And as we do, we need, we need to be the one place in the world where somebody uh, can feel uh, fulfilled and be fulfilled uh, in their singleness. And the church should be the place where that is most represented. I don't know. What do you think? Are you with me? Yeah. We need to deconstruct any sort of singular vision of what faithful discipleship looks like. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's not just singleness. It's also, I have a white collar job or, you know, I have, I have these things going for me. I have season tickets to this. I think it's difficult culturally to accept that there can be many, many appropriate and healthy paths of faithful discipleship in yes. terms of what the Christian life looks like. And singleness needs to be not just, you know, a little bit lesser than it needs to be a bona fide, acceptable, and and even admirable. Yes. Wait, now a lot of the people, I'm gonna admit, a lot of the people I know are single are not single because that's absolutely what they want. Yes. So there's kind of three categories, right? There's married, and then there's there's single by choice, and then there's single by circumstances. Yes. And um single by circumstances, again we need to not send the signal to people that they're living a lesser than life because of that. Or we have to send a signal. We all live lesser than lives in this era of already not yet. Yep. And and that all of us have those kinds of issues. You know, I think this ends up being that we, we amplify certain texts of scripture that make marriage look like the ideal. And, and then we discount or downplay other parts of scripture where we're we're called to focus on the gospel, we're called yes. to focus on the mission, we're called to focus on God's good future, and and really lean into that. And yeah. so there is, you know, I do feel kind of a pang of conviction as I think about how I may have contributed to making someone feel lesser than because they don't yes. have the same circumstances that I do. Yeah, you know, NJ, this is it's a, I do a I do a lecture on uh, preaching illustrations. Um, and when, mm-hmm. when I do my lecture on preaching illustrations, I, I always uh, do a, a whole section on diversifying our illustrations uh, for this very purpose. Yeah. Most people who are married and have kids, most of their illustrations are about marriage and kids. And that's right. natural because, because that's our life. It's our life experience. That is a dangerous thing to do because it all the more solidifies in the Christian imagination that the only way I can imagine myself in the kingdom is through marriage and through kids. Hmm. Um, and, and that's, and that, that's, we just got to be mindful of it and not hold up only married ideals. Now I'm married and I love it yeah. and I love my wife and I'm grateful to God every day that I'm married, but that is not, I love, I love it. Let's not set ourselves up as the norm. Right. J- Jesus is the ideal. Right. And anything else is an idol. Jesus is the ideal. Mm-hmm. Anything else is is it. And by the way, Jesus will be married. In the new creation, there will be a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. And we will become one with Christ for all time. We long for that marriage. It doesn't matter if you're single or married today. We will. We are all in Christ right. on the guest list for that dinner. And, and so marriage is in our future endless love with the eternal creator of the universe. And that's good news. That's good news. DJ, I love talking to you, bro. Yeah. It's ended up being a, a really thought provoking, great conversation. Thanks, AJ. Yeah, same to you.